Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. For about two weeks now, truck driving protesters have snarled traffic and otherwise disrupted daily life in downtown Ottawa, ostensibly to protest COVID-related restrictions and vaccine mandates. These protests have spread elsewhere in Canada and for a time forced the closure of the busiest border crossing between the United States and Canada, the Ambassador Bridge that connects Detroit to Windsor, Ontario. Meanwhile, right-wing media in the U.S. are cheering on these protests. Joining me to explain what exactly is happening in Canada and who these protesters are is journalist Justin Ling. He is both a keen observer of Canadian politics and has also done extensive reporting on right-wing media in the USA. He is the producer of the six-part CBC podcast series, Flamethrowers, about the rise of right-wing talk radio in the U.S. We kick off discussing the scene in downtown Ottawa before having a broader conversation about what exactly is motivating these protests and its potential political impact both in Canada and the United States. And like many other recent recordings, our conversation was recorded live via Twitter spaces. Uh, About a thousand people joined us live, and it was a really interesting and lively question and answer session after my portion of the interview with Justin concluded. If you ever want to join in these live recordings, uh, simply follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg to be alerted uh, when they are happening. They're usually scheduled like not too far in advance. Uh, so the best way to know when they're happening is, is just to follow me. Of course, no need. Uh, you can just keep on listening to the podcast and uh, you'll get the same content. And uh, just one quick note, I've gotten many new followers and subscribers to the show in recent weeks and just want to say welcome. Uh, Do make sure that you subscribe to the full feed. Uh, Doing so unlocks our entire archive of content. I've been doing this since 2013, publishing two episodes a week, every week. So chances are, if you are interested in a topic in international affairs, I've covered it in some way over the years. So just uh, subscribe to the feed to unlock all those old episodes. And if you are a regular listener, thanks for sticking with me for so long. Uh, Do leave a review if you can, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thanks. All right, now here is my conversation with journalist Justin Ling. I've had interesting conversations with you before uh, about Canadian politics, but you also have a keen sense of like the right wing media milieu that I think is is feeding into this whole situation in a very interesting way. And uh, I want to just kind of kick off by having you describe just like the scene in Ottawa today, like what's happening, what's happening now in Ottawa. Yeah, so you know, I spent some time in the occupied in the occupied zone, as I guess we're calling it now. Uh, last weekend, sort of uh, wandering around. Uh, since then, I've been kind of watching from afar, largely kind of digesting what's going on via live streams and uploads from a whole bunch of the folks who are actually in and amongst uh, this thicket of trucks that's parked right in front of Parliament. 
Um, but it's a really wild scene, right? You know, it's not like we haven't had occupations like this before. I mean, think back to Occupy Wall Street. Um, you know, people have taken over huge swaths of our downtown cores or our major cities um, several times over the last couple of decades to protest whatever. But what's so different, I mean, this is kind of goes without saying, but what's so different about this one is the fact that they have all of this physical infrastructure they've brought with them, right? There is somewhere in the ballpark of 200 uh, trucks still parked in downtown Ottawa. When they first showed up, it was probably north of 500, 600, maybe more. Um, and these trucks, some of them are just a rig. Some of them are rigged with a trailer behind them. People, they brought in flatbed trucks um, to serve as a stage. Uh, they've created a little neighborhood sitting right in front of the parliament buildings right in downtown ottawa on wellington street if anyone's familiar and they basically shut down all traffic all movement in that core they've started erecting uh, some some actual structures they built a kitchen uh, they bought a bunch of saunas uh, and trucked them in to serve as little uh, you know residences offices whatever um they've set up fires in some locations they've set up big grills um, they at night they have a whole stage for for speeches during the day that converts into a DJ booth at night where they're down where this sort of central area turns into a big dance party uh, throughout the day you'll be wandering around there'll be people having uh, prayer meetings uh, there will be uh, little information sessions I stumbled upon a little circle that oscillated between a dance party and prophesizing the benefits of ivermectin as a treatment for COVID nineteen. And, and, and that's what's so bizarre about this. It has a sort of party atmosphere. It has this sort of jovial nature. But then you start looking around and listening, and you start realizing there's all of these really conspiracy tinges to everything. People are carrying signs that say vaccines equal genocide. I saw one huge sign that showed a very creepy looking demonic style, very anti-Semitic caricature of George Soros pulling Justin Trudeau's strings. Um, and there was some scrawling about Pfizer knowing the vaccine is dangerous. And, and, you, and you can hear people on stage yelling that these vaccines are medical experiments. So there's this real cognitive you know, disconnect between the sort of happy vibe you're wandering through and the deeply paranoid uh, ideology that runs straight through the protest. Um, and it's just remarkable the degree to which they've, they've dug in, right? Police are completely unable of... of, of dismantling this of pushing them away you know every effort they've made to try to reclaim some of these streets hasn't gone over very well well can can i ask on that because i mean i've been to ottawa it's it's not like a big city by any stretch and you're talking about like what a couple hundred trucks that has to be like incredibly disruptive beyond the area just around parliament right oh absolutely i mean you really can't move around the downtown core effectively as these trucks are blocking Wellington Street. So if anyone's familiar, I'll give you a little bit of the geography. Um, Wellington Street is this big four-lane street that runs right in front of Parliament. Um, And for about seven or eight blocks, maybe a bit longer, uh, it's totally backed up with trucks, you know, rigs, uh, a couple campers, some SUVs and whatnot, completely impassable. This is normally a huge bus route, a huge route for people uh, commuting to work in normal times, totally impassable right now. In some of the north-south streets below it um, that are kind of uh, you know, main arteries in the downtown core, uh, you have people who have parked in the middle of the street blocking them. In some cases, you just have trucks doing loops of these streets just previously, laying on their horns uh, and just in snarling traffic. 
Uh, it is incredibly difficult to drive anywhere downtown right now. Walking through it is a nightmare. Um, it, it is basically shutting down Ottawa. You're right. It's not a big city. It's not a big downtown core. This has functionally made it impossible to get through the, the, main, the main center of it. So can you take us back a bit? Can you explain, describe how and why did this protest start? Yeah, so it, it was the brainchild of this guy who I don't think anyone would have ever heard of prior to this convoy, and, and frankly, men, many still haven't heard of. A guy named James Bowder. Um, he is a conspiracy theorist, to say the least. He has repeatedly expressed support for, for QAnon. Um, he has suggested that COVID-19 was a pandemic. He suggested that uh, Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum and basically just your normal roster of conspiracy theory boogeymen, that they all got together to uh, orchestrate the pandemic in order to juice profits for the pharmaceutical sector and enslave people into a one world government. Bog standard stuff for a lot of people who spend way too much time reading uh, conspiracy theory outlets. So. Last year, he started a group, or he really you know, activated his group called Canada Unity. And Canada Unity uh, exists on this really kind of ludicrous premise that they can use a bunch of international conventions and international uh, treaties uh, to force the Canadian government uh, to stop enforcing vaccine mandates, to stop uh, enforcing vaccine requirements, and to maybe get rid of many other public health measures that have been brought in thanks to COVID-19. Uh, it is absolutely ludicrous. The way he wants to do this is through a memorandum of understanding. This MOU uh, is between, the way it's written, it's between him and his group and his wife, weirdly, uh, the Senate of Canada and the Governor General. The Senate of Canada is unelected. It is an upper body. It's an upper chamber. It's kind of like the House of Lords in the UK. It doesn't really have a particularly uh, serious role to play in, in, in governing the country, I'm sure some Democratic nerds will get mad at me for saying that. but uh, And the governor general is an appointed body that is really a rubber stamp uh, on legislation. Neither of these bodies are Democratic. Uh, but uh, James Bowder envisioned his group working with the Senate and the governor general to abolish these vaccine mandates and in one way, shape or form, govern the country and maybe dissolve parliament and remove Justin Trudeau from power in the process. Obviously, this is all ludicrous. But last year, he started a convoy to Ottawa to deliver these MOUs to the Senate, which he hoped would sign the document and agree to govern the country with him, I guess. It didn't go very well. Maybe a couple dozen people joined him on this. He left the city in uh, October, and he started planning his second one. And it just so happened that as he was planning his second convoy, the news breaks that the Trudeau government is going to start enforcing vaccine mandates for truckers crossing the U.S.-Canada border, and Joe Biden's going to do the same. Suddenly, this issue is front page news and all of these groups are scrambling to to sign on to James Bowder's ridiculous plan to drive a bunch of trucks to Ottawa. And suddenly, you know, what started as a few dozen people explodes into thousands and thousands, more than 10,000 protesters joining this convoy. And they're still organized around this crazy document that says that James Bowder and his group should decide government policy. And, And this is how everything started. 
And the ostensible reason, as you said, was this idea that, um, you know, truckers crossing the border on both sides of both nationalities need to be uh, vaccinated. And this is something that, you know, is decided in coordination between the governments of the United States and Canada, you know, is the you know largest Canada and the U.S. are each other's largest, you know, trading partners, at least Canada is the U.S.'s largest trading partner. So they do like, you know, try to coordinate these kinds of cross-border policies to the best extent possible, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it's important to note that uh, there is a, a very you know robust debate about the the wisdom of these of these mandates. Um, the Canadian Trucking Alliance, for example, uh, opposes them, or at least opposed to them in the past. Um, they're the Conservative Party, uh, the official opposition in Canada in Canada's House of Commons opposes these mandates. Uh, there has been a debate about the wisdom of of, of you. Know, forcing unvaccinated truckers off the job. There's concerns that it would exacerbate supply chain shortages. There's concerns that it would it would put people needlessly out of work, that truckers really are not a main source of transmission for COVID-19 anyway. It doesn't make much sense to, to, to push this mandate on them. There's a bunch of reasonable discussions to be had here. The problem is uh, the, the criticism of these mandates has largely fallen to this group, to this convoy. They have become the voice and sort of the outgrowth of this opposition which is really inaccurate. I actually saw the front page of the New York Times today has a big photo of downtown Ottawa, and it describes the convoy as being against these trucker mandates. But it's not. It's factually inaccurate to say that. The trucker mandates became the news peg, the the nice PR uh, hook for this group, but they're fundamentally against every single vaccine requirement across the board. Why is that? Because by and large, these groups are anti-vaccine. They think vaccines are dangerous. They think vaccines are causing harm and killing people in scores and the the data is being covered up. So at its core, this is not about the truckers, right? The truckers have become a symbol of what is a broader opposition to these vaccine mandates. A ton of people who turned out in Ottawa and who are still there are not truckers. A ton of who are truckers do not do the cross-border routes. Uh, and, and, And those who are actual truckers who will be impacted by this mandate some of them are vaccinated, by the way, but many of them who will lose their jobs, uh, you know, are represent a, a, a relatively small number of truckers uh, in the overall scheme of things. So I know you've spent time among these protesters, have spoken to to the protesters. Like, what are you hearing directly from them? Like, what are you learning uh, about, um, you know, their their motivations? And are there any like kind of anecdotes or stories you could share that are illustrative to that end? Yeah, I, I mean, so first off, this crowd is not super enthusiastic about journalists. Uh, the number of signs and, and sweaters and hats I saw that said the media is the virus, a ton. There's a ton. Uh, so I, I admittedly didn't spend a ton of my time going into the crowd by myself and uh, trying to provoke conversations. But I've spoken to I've spoken to some of them and I've followed some of their live streams and some of their Facebook posts and so on and so forth. But there was this really illustrating moment because these people, I, I actually think a ton of these people, I, I think the organizers are one thing. I think there's definitely an element in this crowd that is 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 disconcerting, worrying, may uh, respond with violence if the police move in. I, I can't you know, discount that. But I think a ton of the people in this crowd are regular folks who have fallen down the rabbit hole of disinformation, right? They are people who with wives and kids or husbands and kids uh, who are perfectly pleasant, I don't think have ever uh, you know, engaged in violence, would never engage in political violence, probably are not terribly political to begin with. 
but who happen to believe that vaccines are dangerous and that there's an international conspiracy to cover up the harms, right? And this is the end result of having a proliferation of a media ecosystem that loves to peddle uh, nonsense for revenue, right? Um, so I actually had a couple pleasant conversations with, with some folks. I try not to get into it too much with them, but there was this one guy I shared an elevator with um, who, you know, we were making small talk about the weather, which is what you do in Ottawa because it's constantly freezing. And, uh, you know, we, he said, you know, things could be worse. Things could be worse. I said, yeah, they, you know, they could be worse, could be better. I walked into the elevator and the last thing he said to me is, it'll be a lot better when we finally get that fucker. And it's, and it's just this jarring thing where you're like, well, these people you know, are very pleasant and polite and are protesting peacefully, but also they genuinely believe that the prime minister should be arrested or removed from power. Now, I actually just got off the phone with one of the protesters who's in the occupation zone. Again, lovely guy, has a wife and two beautiful kids, has, has repeatedly said he has no interest in violence. He's only here to protest peacefully. I think at one point he called it the most peaceful pro protest of all time which is a little bit hyperbolic. Gandhi would be offended, I think. But nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I was chatting with him and he, he made it very clear, you know, he, he's against these mandates because he doesn't think these vaccines are safe. You know, he wants to bring the prime minister to the table and force the government to negotiate because he doesn't think vaccines are part of the solution to getting out of this pandemic and thinks uh, that you know, society is being torn apart by, by these requirements. Um, you know, there was a press conference yesterday with one of the organizers who said uh, very, you know, who, again, questioned the efficacy and safety of vaccines, uh, but also said point blank, you know, we expect to be brought to the table. We want to. And if the prime minister doesn't want to meet with us, we'll meet with all the opposition parties and we'll, we'll form a coalition with them. Or maybe I'll go meet the governor general. If the governor general wants to meet with us to get rid of these vaccine mandates, we'll do that instead. So there's a really anti-democratic, anti-government paranoid thread going through this. And it's not just the organizers. It's going through a lot of the protesters as well. It's going through a lot of the media that are covering this. And it, it really should worry us. because I think it is a sign of things to come. What has been the government response so far? I know on Sunday, uh, the mayor of Ottawa declared a state of emergency. The last I've seen that they're trying to, the, the Trudeau government is trying to call up some uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police to support local police. What has in general been the, the response so far by the government? Yeah. So on the local level, the, you know, the mayor has, uh, done his best, I think, to manage uh, the, 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 the fallout from all of this, right? You know, he's recently declared uh, a state of emergency in the city. Um, he's tried to work with police to boost their numbers to manage some of the uh, enforcement of this to try and uh, liaise with um, uh, some of these uh, uh, truckers. Um, but he's, he's, his, his hands are tied, right? The Ottawa Police Service is not, is not a significant uh, police force. It's not that big. They don't have the capacity really to handle this, especially not when you factor in uh, the number of, of, of trucks and the amount of infrastructure here. Um, above that, uh, the premier has, uh, Doug Ford, uh, has, has, has denounced the protesters, has, has I think recently uh, floated the idea that maybe they should start revoking the registration for some of these trucks, which is, uh, I think would be a big escalation. And then, you know, really the prime minister has, 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 I think, kind of challenged these folks. At one point last week, he called them tinfoil hat wearing uh, anti-vaccine types, which I think maybe has, you know, didn't particularly help. Um, but you know, at all levels of government, they just don't really have a solution for this, right? You know, they can ask police to go send more tickets. You know, the prime minister is sending uh, and the premier are sending more police personnel to help 
they're trying to sort of supplement, uh, supplement these numbers. Uh, they're trying to figure out a solution. But really, these protesters are saying, um, you know, half of them are saying we won't leave until the, va- the vaccine mandates are gone. The other half are saying we won't leave until the vaccine mandates and the prime minister is gone. And those two things just aren't going to happen. I mean, you know, those things, those demands are not going to be acquiesced to. And, uh, you know, if they're saying they're not going to leave until those demands are met, we're at an impasse and there's really no uh, solution that any of these politicians can offer. And is it fair to say that this group does not have much popular support? I mean, it's obviously there's like enthusiastic support among like the fringe anti-vax movement. But broadly speaking, throughout Canada, has there been any sort of polling or is there a general sense uh, the extent to which the general public is supporting these these protests? Yeah, we uh, we have a little bit of data. I, I think we have to approach it with a bit of skepticism. Um, so I think there's been three, there might be a new poll today, but I think there's been roughly three polls done. Um, I think the, the useful one is polling Ottawa residents and overwhelmingly they are, you know, I think 80% say they're strongly opposed or at least somewhat opposed uh, to this occupation. And unsurprisingly so for people who live in the downtown core, things are, are intolerable, right? There, there was honking incessantly for about a week. Uh, there uh, have been confrontations and harassment happening. Uh, by folks in Ottawa uh, from the protesters just because they're wearing a mask. Business owners and employees have been harassed and harangued uh, by these protesters who are adamant about not wearing masks indoors. We have a, a indoor mask mandate in Ontario. Um, so for people who live in Ottawa, this has just been horrible. I think there's a, probably a rump of people who are who are supportive, but by and large, Ottawa, which is one of the most vaccinated cities in Canada, which is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, is not super receptive to this crowd. Nationally, we have a couple polls that that are really, frankly, kind of difficult to parse because the language and the questions are are so sort of vague. Um, and and some of the polling was done kind of very early on before this really hit national international news. But they generally show that about two thirds of the country uh, disagree with the protesters and the protest itself. Um, there is maybe a third of the country who identify with the protesters who sympathize with them. But it also looks like that number is declining, the more coverage that it gets. I think there are people who are probably probably vaccinated, who don't support the vaccine mandates, who thought the original protest for that one weekend in January was a, a reasonable response. I imagine a lot of those people are not going to feel the same way as we go into week two, as some of the reports uh, are coming out of, of just how kind of ludicrous these demands are and how some of the protesters are, are you know, are leaning more towards I don't want to say violence because I don't think violence is the right term, but I think I think the conflict and the confrontation between the city and the protesters is getting more intense. Mm. And as it does, that's probably going to turn people off who who kind of generally or amorphously support the the protests, uh, at least in its origin. Well, you know, following on that thread, I mean, could you foresee or what do you expect the impact of this protest movement to be on the politics of Canada more generally? I mean, you said earlier that the Conservative Party is generally also opposed to vaccine mandates. I know there has recently been a change of leadership, a sort of upheaval in the Conservative Party in Canada. But you've also had figures like Doug Ford, the Conservative Premier of Ontario, criticizing this protest movement. Uh, like, how do you foresee this movement impacting both the politics of the Conservative Party and national politics more broadly? 
Yeah, so I mean, there's something really interesting going on, and it's the fact that some of the most stringent and and difficult COVID nineteen measures in the country have been brought in by conservative politicians, right? Including a ton of the really difficult vaccine mandates. The conservative premier of of Quebec um, has required vaccines for all major stores and the liquor store and the cannabis shops. So you can't go buy booze or a joint in Quebec, at least not in person, unless you show your proof of vaccine. And and it looks like there's going to be a requirement that you're going to have to start showing proof of a booster dose as well. So the premier is, uh, you know, the conservative movement broadly is, is split based on what level of government you're talking about. When you get to the conservative party federally, there's a tremendous split in the middle uh, that represents a whole bunch of kind of weird dynamics inside that party. There is an element of that party that is definitely more conservative. Um, there's an element uh, that I think aligns at least to some degree um, with the anti-vaccine cause. Uh, there is certainly one MP who I saw wandering around uh, the uh, the downtown core listening to some of the speakers who has, I, I think, played a little footsie with folks who are distrustful of these vaccines. Uh, so I think there is a little bit of a constituency inside that party who look at these protesters and agree with them. There's a ton of people in the conservative party, maybe even a majority, who just don't ideologically agree with these vaccine mandates, at least not for certain industries. Um, but I think one of the most kind of potent drivers for the conservative party is the fact that they are having their heels nipped by an upstart far-right party led by one of their former uh, leadership contenders. So Maxime Bernier is a, nearly won the leadership of the Conservative Party a few years ago. Uh, he left in sort of a, a cloud of, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but he, he left and started his own nationalist, far-right, anti-immigrant, conspiracy-minded uh, party, uh, taking some cues from Donald Trump, taking some cues from Marine Le Pen, uh, called the People's Party. And over the last two years, the People's Party has engaged in all manner of uh, conspiracy theorizing, uh, theorizing and anti-vaccine misinformation. He has become a bit of a, a leader of the anti-vaccine movement, of the anti-lockdown movement in Canada. Uh, and he has uh, you know, been quite successful in that. And, and is there like the sense then that the enthusiasm uh, of the participants in this protest movement and those who who support it kind of will coalesce politically around this far right leader and, you know, sort of and, and that far right leader will kind of chip away at, say, the con- more moderate conservative uh, political support. I mean, here in the United States, you know, with our two party system, we've seen like the fringe become more mainstream within the Republican Party over the last couple of years. But it's sort of interesting to to note the differing political dynamics and some of the similarities uh, b- yeah. between the, the the two systems. With without it, I mean, you've seen the same thing. I mean, the Conservative Party has uh, started, I think, trying to tilt itself to to appeal to those voters who who back Maxime Bernier. Uh, and there is a feeling that those voters belong in the Conservative Party. They need to be won back. And the only way the Conservative Party can ever kind of regain power again is if they uh, broaden the base to include that fringe element. Uh, and I think people in that party will tell you this is about kind of bringing them in the fold and, and you know, doing, you know, doing good uh, you know, by kind of you know, assuming that that far right element. You saw the same you know, theory put in place by a whole bunch of moderate Republicans who thought that bringing Donald Trump into the fold was better than having him piss outside the tent, frankly. And obviously, look how that turned out. 
But what's ludicrous about this is that Maxime Bernier ran in the last federal election, which took place last September. He got 850,000 votes. That is about, I think, 6% of the, of the, of the total uh, electorate. That is a pretty piss-poor showing for somebody who got a ton of free media over the last couple of years. There is really no chance that Maxime Bernier is ever going to become prime minister or probably ever break through 10% of, uh, of the total uh, population. People do not like him. They do not trust him. They think he's a crank. So all this vying for his supporters is really a, a dicey proposition that probably won't even work that well. Um, so I'm interested, I wanted to speak to you also, uh, because of your experience and your reporting on right wing media in the United States for those coming in, uh, late Justin is the producer writer of, of a podcast that, that talks about like the history of, of right wing talk radio in, in the United States. So, you know, like the right wing media ecosystem a bit. And I've noticed in recent days, Fox news, Tucker Carlson has sort of endorsed and, and cheered on. Uh, this protest in Ottawa. What sort of connection do you see between these protesters and you know the right wing media ecosystems here in the United States? I mean, at least they, they seem to, to feed off of each other to a certain degree from where I sit. But I'm interested to learn from you what um, you know does one inspire the other in in any meaningful way? Oh, absolutely. There is a, there is a positive feedback loop that exists here. You know, these broadcasters. Uh, put out uh, either you know half true or outright false information about the safety and efficacy of vaccines, about whether or not COVID nineteen emerged from a, a lab in, in Wuhan, whether or not it's a bioweapon, whether or not a Pfizer. You, you can go down the list of all the the ludicrous claims that are being that are being weaponized. And when those claims take hold, these protesters start, or you know, these or these anti vaccine agitators or these conspiracy theorists, so on and so forth, they start you know, living in a world of different information, right? They increasingly um, become beholden to these broadcasters, right? So if you spend a ton of time watching Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson tells you, uh, you know, there is concerns about the safety of these vaccines. You know, this these pandemic measures are about control uh, from the government. You know, there is a plot afoot uh, to suppress this information. And it's really important that these broadcasters always, you know, tag it with, and no one else is telling you this. And the mainstream media is lying to you about this. And this shouldn't surprise anybody. We've, we've experienced this phenomenon for several years now. But what was jarring to me working on the Flamethrowers, this podcast, looking at the history of right-wing radio, is how effective it is. People really take this to heart. And you're seeing it everywhere in this convoy, in this protest. These people do not trust the mainstream media. They, by default, assume everything is a lie. But they become incredibly credulous to information outlets uh, like Tucker Carlson, like Fox News, like Newsmax, One American News, uh, Stu Peters, a uh, far-right conspiracy broadcaster, has been a huge ally to this convoy and this protest. Uh, Rebel News, which is actually based in Canada but has a footprint um, throughout the UK, Australia, and the US. There's, an, there's a newspaper called Druthers that just publishes complete nonsense about the safety of vaccines. All of these outlets form a sort of media diet that sort of you know, confirm each other, that sort of um, co you know, collaborate in some cases, that sort of validate each other. And the more you live by just reading and watching these outlets, the more you develop a worldview that is just completely disconnected from reality. And that's what leads you to do things like you know, drive to the capital of Canada and demand that the prime minister be tried for treason, because the language around his treasonous behavior and the, the language around the things that he's done 
come directly out of these news outlets. So you know, there is absolutely a, a symbiotic relationship because then after they arrive and start this seemingly grassroots movement, these outlets then play them up like they're significantly bigger and more important and influential than they actually are. And that feeds back to the protesters and it, it becomes this snowball effect. And you're going to start seeing these convoy protests pop up everywhere. I think we've already seen thousands show up in Canberra. Uh, there were about 700 people in Helsinki. You saw dozens of people uh, surround Keir Starmer's car in London, the labor leader. Uh, there's plans to drive to Washington in the next couple of weeks. Uh, there's a plan to converge on Brussels. Uh, so increasingly, you're going to see far right and conspiracy minded broadcasters and news outlets use this and hold this up as a, as, as sort of a uh, a proof of the momentum and the power they possess to 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 activate people and to to create these movements justin in the coming days or even weeks are there any sort of inflection points or kind of key decisions to be made that will suggest to you one way or another how this situation may unfold it's going to be a big question about what the city of Ottawa does. So the prime minister has pledged, uh, I think, several hundred uh, federal police officers to the city. Uh, the city is deputizing them to to do sort of uh, law enforcement. It looks like the province will send in more personnel as well. Uh, there's rumblings from the protesters, strangely enough, that they believe um, a, a, a crackdown is coming, that they believe the riot police are coming in. I don't think that's true, but at a certain point, the city will have to make a decision. Are they going to send police in to just issue tickets occasionally? Are they going to start really enforcing this? Are they going to start towing away vehicles and impounding vehicles and removing vehicle registration from protesters who are illegally camped downtown? Or are they going to go for a, a, a swift and immediate removal uh, of everybody in the downtown core. I think those are the three options ahead of us. Uh, there are real drawbacks and benefits from each of them. Um, I think, depending on how it's done, it could lead to serious conflict. And I think the, the decision on which one to go with is going to have to come in the next week. Uh, I don't know how that's going to look. I don't I think anybody who tells you is is is, is wrong. Um, the protesters are repeating their pledge to remain peaceful, but they're also increasingly getting ap you know, apocalyptic about what comes next. Uh, and if they're expecting conflict, then we might get conflict. Um, I don't know how this ends otherwise. The protesters, like I've said, have been emphatically clear that the only way out of this is for the prime minister to remove all these vaccine mandates, which, by the way, just even how our system works, he didn't actually have the authority to do that by fiat, but never mind. Yeah. Um, they wanted to remove all of these, these these measures. And and like I said, many want him to resign. Those two things are not going to happen. There can't even be a negotiation because these people fundamentally are requesting something ludicrous uh, because even meeting with them would be validating and encouraging for this fringe movement, which represents maybe 5% of the country. You know, there is just such a horrible precedent that would be a play if the prime minister started seriously meeting uh, with them as, as equals. It just It is not going to happen. And even trying to send a mediator is going to go nowhere because these people don't have a compromise position. They have one stated objective, and if it's not met, they're going to stay. And they've repeated that a thousand times. So it's there's no good policing solution, but there's also no good political solution. So I think something has to come to a head by next weekend. 
maybe before next weekend because it looks like a ton of people are kind of coming in and out every weekend and then going back to work through the week. So I tend to think we're going to have to see something move by Friday, but I don't know what that's going to be. Uh, well, Justin, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Justin Ling. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we did have a, a lively Q&A session with the audience who was listening live. If you ever want to listen live, just follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg to be alerted uh, when I am recording one of these episodes. Thanks. Uh, I do try to leave time for questions from the audience uh, if permitted. All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.